Let's pray. Holy Father, your word is truth. May your word do a work. Build your church. Save sinners. Lord, I pray that what comes out of my mouth is in line with your word. I do not drift to the left or to the right, but stay focused on what your word says. I pray for, Lord, that as you speak to us, Lord, give us attentive ears. I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, did any of you grow up in a small town, a small, cozy community? What was it like to leave that small town and then go to a big city for the first time? For many of you, it was pretty scary. Lots of people. People don't look and act like they do in your small town. They dress differently. They're not as friendly. They don't go to church. They look like they're going to hurt somebody, and possibly you. Seeing all this, you can't wait to to get back to your small town, your safe community, a place with smiling faces, a place where everybody's at church on Sunday morning. Everybody dresses the same. Everybody has the same ambitions. It's safe. It's secure. You feel like God is in this place, and you never want to leave. But what does God do? He gives you a job, and you move from that quaint small town to a big, wretched city. You find a church there, shockingly, and you see that there are folks there that on the exterior look scary, but there's a gentleness about them that has only one explanation. They know Jesus. This place in the middle of a scary atmosphere has people in it that love Jesus and want others to know Jesus. Well, how and why did this happen? Because God desired their salvation. Christ is not merely the Savior of those in your small town, but he is the Savior of those in the big and scary city. His sovereignty, his kingdom, his great salvation is not confined to your familiar town and your familiar people. He is the Savior of the whole world, of every city, of every nation. But do we believe this? And if so, how are our prayers affected by this fact? We are, in fact, commanded to pray for all people in the advancement of Christ's kingdom. And this is a commandment for the whole congregation as we gather weekly. But where would someone find this command? Well, look in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Verses 1 through 7. And this passage teaches us that as the church gathers... We must pray for the salvation of all people because this is pleasing to the only God and the only mediator, Jesus, who is the ransom for the world. First, we'll see two reasons why we are to pray for all, and then we'll address ways in which we can put this into practice as a church. First, 
The church must pray for all because he desires all to be saved. The church must pray for all because he desires all to be saved. Look at verses 1 through 4. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So this section goes from Paul speaking to Timothy with the church in the background. So to Timothy before the church, for the whole church. Now he's speaking to the gathered church with Timothy now sitting down in the audience. He begins to lay out Christ's commands for the churches and how they are to be ordered. So these things are the responsibility of the whole congregation, all of us. And you'll notice Paul uses first person for himself a good deal. And he does this in the rest of the letter. He says, I. I does not necessarily, does, does that mean that Paul is giving his opinion or just his two cents and we can take it or leave it? No, as we will call from the beginning of the letter and the rest of the New Testament, the apostles' teaching carried the authority of Christ. It is the very word of God. And that's important for us to remember as we look at some somewhat controversial passages in the next few weeks. They can't be dismissed as Paul's opinion or just some type of cultural influence. Now, these are the very words of Christ, and this is the very word of God. Well, Paul opens the practical section of this letter with a first of all signifying our order of importance. First of all, first of all, what is the gathering community's top priority? Well, Paul urges here. Again, it's the same word he uses in verse 3 of chapter 1, urge or, or command. And the command is that as the church gathers, we pray for all people. And he uses every facet of prayer here. Thanksgivings, requests, praying for others' plights, every aspect of prayer. We ask God for provision. We pray for God's mercy on behalf of others. We thank God for others. But who are these prayers for? On, who are, on behalf of who? All people. More on that in a moment. But including these prayers are all, for all people is all kings and all who are in high positions. <laughs> That's easy for you, Paul. All your Roman leaders at the time were Christians, and they always sought what was best for the churches and made sure they were safe. We obviously know that was not true. That was not the case. The Roman leaders were publicly immoral and were not friends of theirs, not the churches. But the command remains. God is the one who decreed these leaders to be in office at the times they were. And God commands Christians of all, in all places and all times to pray for their leaders and the na other nations' leaders. No commands in Scripture to complain or dishonor leaders, but to pray for them. But how? And to what end do we pray for them? Well, you'll notice there's another, so that. In verse 2, he says, For kings and all who are in high position, so that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. 
So we pray for the leaders of our country and foreign countries where our brothers and sisters in Christ live. Well, is it so that Christians can live cozy lives? So that Christians can live at ease and eat, drink, and be merry? That's not what Paul's getting at here. The point is that the church should pray for governing authorities for the purpose of gospel advancement. That Christians would be able to live lives walking in holiness and gospel proclamation unhindered. Not that we would live comfortably in a community where we would just sit back, relax, and kick back. No, but that the churches can minister freely, that we could share the gospel freely, that we could live our, our biblical convictions freely. For what purpose? That the kingdom of God would advance. Not for my comfort and stability, not to go back to how it was in my childhood. No, but for seeing more and more people come to faith in Jesus. And that is the desire of, of God, and, our God and Savior, and ought to be ours as well. Now, today in our, our present context, we are free for the most part. It's a key phrase, key phrase, most part. Relatively speaking, we have a lot of freedom here. You don't think so, then hop on a plane and cross over to other parts of the world and see for yourself. For the most part, there are no governing authorities saying, I can't tell people about Jesus or to gather as a church body. But that may not always be the case. It may not be all the case here always. And it is definitely not the case in many places of the world. For our brothers and sisters all the world, especially in hostile places, this type of prayer is an everyday prayer. Who their leaders are every few years determines how free they are to proclaim the gospel and to meet together. That's why a part of our prayers as a missions ministry team is that we pray for governing authorities over the missionaries of whom we support. But that shouldn't be just our missions ministry team praying for that. That should be the whole us as a congregation. I highly recommend you go out to our, our hallway here and you see this little the booklet here of all the missionaries of whom we support as a church. Pray for the governing authorities of our missionaries' countries. And why should we do this? Why do we pray for the authorities of them? Well, we see in verse 2, verse 2 really functions as a, a side comment to the major thrust of the prayer. That prayer is aimed for all people. But why pray for all people, all men, literally? What's the motivation? Well, this should be obvious, and the primary reason is in verse 3, that it is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. That, that should be enough for us. To please the heavenly Father should be why we obey every command of his. But this God is distinct. Paul gives a description of this God in verse 4. Why do we pray for all people? Because it is pleasing to God. Why is it pleasing to God? Look at verse 4. In the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men, all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. 
So all of what Paul had been saying in verses 1 through 3 is pointing to this. Why do we pray for them and especially their governing authorities? Well, the song which the heavenly creatures sing in Revelation 5, 9 through 10 give us a clue. It says, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So Christ is not Savior merely of Israel. He's not just the King of the Jews. He's the Savior of the world. He's the King of all nations. And why do we pray for all? Because he desires the salvation of his people from all the nations. As we see in Revelation, he is going to do it. He is redeeming men and women from every tribe, tongue, and nation. But he does it through means. He does it through the verbal sharing of the gospel, yes. But as we see in this passage in 1 Timothy, he does it through the means of the prayers of the local churches. He desires his people to pray his kingdom come, his will be done. Now think about this. He will provide our daily bread. I don't have to worry about his provision. But we are commanded to pray for our daily bread. His sovereignty is demonstrated through means. And if you use the sovereignty of God as an excuse for your prayerlessness, listen, friend, you have a warped and unbiblical view of God's sovereignty. God our Savior, God our Savior desires the salvation of all peoples, of the Jews, of Greeks, of Ethiopians, of Arabs, of the Japanese, of Brazilians, Americans, and even Germans. And it's not merely that they be saved, but that they come to the knowledge of the truth, that they would grow in the knowledge of Christ and spiritual maturity and Christ-likeness. Justification. They're, 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 they're coming to faith in Christ is not the end all, but it's their sanctification, their glorification as well. Now, compare these prayers with the, the prayer of Daniel in Daniel 9, which, by the way, is a beautiful prayer. Daniel, as you know, was in exile and was praying an intercessory prayer for his people Israel. Daniel is calling out to God, to the God of Israel, uh, God for Israel, who are scattered and in exile. He calls on God to save Israel and have mercy on Israel. Israel was indeed God's people. They were to be a light to the nations. So Paul, I mean, so Daniel prays for them and himself as a member of that nation. However, now that Christ has come, God's people are now all who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. Now our prayers do reflect Daniel's, but not a prayer just for one nation, but for all peoples. Because Christ is the redeemer of all peoples, tribes, and languages. We pray that God would have mercy on all folks from the nations. We pray that their governing authorities would allow freedom for Christians to live freely and to plant churches and to evangelize. 
And all of this is dependent upon God who has mercy. And he works through the prayers of his people. So is this our prayer as a church? The salvation of men and women. For you as an individual Christian, is this your prayer? You'll notice when we pray together on Sunday, especially our pastoral prayer, we often pray for our missionaries. We pray for other churches in the area that preach the gospel. And these are not just time fillers in a service. No, we do this because we're commanded to do. Brother, the gospel came to you because God desired your salvation. You weren't seeking it. He was seeking you. Sister, the gospel came to you because God's people were praying that God would save sinners. Of course, I myself am here because I heard the gospel preached faithfully in my church growing up. I grew up in a Christian home where hearing about Jesus. But the gospel came to my family years and years and years ago because of the faithfulness of gospel witness and the prayers of the churches. God worked it all out, and he orchestrated it through these wonderful means by which we are responsible to obey. So do you have someone or, or many folks in mind, in your mind and heart that you know are lost? They don't know Jesus. Well, how often do you pray for them? How often do we pray for our missionaries who we are supporting? Now, does this mean that we literally pray for all every time we gather as a church? No. no. But we have the globe in mind as we think about prayer and as we consider the work that's being done all over the world. We pray for a few or one each Sunday as we gather continually. Now, please, don't misunderstand. Our church and its members have lots of prayer needs, health issues, relationship struggles, etc. We ought to pray for these things. However, what should be the top priority? What should be at the top of the list? What was the apostles' priority? It was the salvation of all men from every tribe and language, the world. And this should be the foremost in our corporate prayer requests. But why? Why? Shouldn't we just leave these folks alone? Their lives are fine. Why go bother them with our religion? Let's just let them worship however they see fit, however they want. Well, here's the reason. It's the second point. The church must pray for all because there is only one Savior. The church must pray for all because there is only one Savior, only one mediator. Look at verses 5 through 7. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher, an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. 
So Paul goes from a wide scope in looking at the salvation of the world to an extremely narrow scope in the agent of salvation. There's only one God, the God of Israel. God our Savior, as he says in verse 3. There are no other gods in existence. No one beside him, in front of him, behind him. No one becomes God or becomes a God. Only one God. There's also only one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus. But what does it mean to be a mediator? Well, a mediator is one who acts between parties. It's one who interposes to reconcile separate parties. Well, so this is, this is an interesting statement. This Jesus Christ has to be two things. He is a man. To function as a go-between, he must be fully man in every respect. And he became man and is man and will forevermore be man. Fully man in body, soul, will, and spirit. In every way like us, except without sin. Okay, but he can't be just human. A mere human can reconcile man with man, but not man with God. He must, he must be divine as well. He must be fully God in every aspect of Godhood. Fully God and fully man. Only Jesus, only Jesus can be the mediator between God and men. He has the exclusive ability to do this job, to be the mediator. Okay? How did he do this? How did he mediate? Well, there's only one means by which sinful man and holy God can be reconciled. It's through the bloody cross of our Lord Jesus. Only his sacrificial death on the cross could atone for sin. Only his undeserving death could pay for our deserving death. His resurrection for the dead proved that he is the only true mediator between God and man. Only man can die, but only God can raise the dead. God and Christ accomplished both. So why do we risk our lives to take this good news to dangerous places? It's because of this fact. No one, no one, no one can come to God but by Jesus. No one can have eternal life, a life from part, apart from Jesus. No one is safe apart from Jesus. No, there is no escape from judgment apart from Jesus. And if you remember, Pontius Pilate, when Jesus was crucified, Pontius Pilate put an inscription, a, a controversial inscription above his head, if you remember what it said. The king of the Jews. Now that it is true, Jesus was and is the king of the Jews. But it's a half-truth. He is the king of Israel and the king of all the nations. 
And as we see in verse 6, he is the ransom or the redemption payment for all the nations. And his hanging on the cross is the witness, the testimony in the proper time. So listen to this. His suffering on the cross was at the hands of the Jews and the Gentiles. Also, on behalf of the Jews and the Gentiles. You see what happened there? Jews and Gentiles are responsible for the crucifixion of Christ. And they're also the beneficiaries of his atonement. And this message proclamation is the calling on Paul's life, as we see in verse 7. This was his appointment from God to proclaim to the nations, the Gentiles, literally the nations, the mediator, the redeemer, the ransom for the sins of the nations, all, all men, to teach them in the faith and in the truth, away from idols, away from putting hope in governing authorities, kings, governors, and presidents, etc., away from all vain things, away from false teaching, to point them to Christ, to point them to follow the one who was raised from the dead. And Paul's so overcome by this statement, he blurts out, I'm not lying, I'm telling the truth. God had brought him from being the blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent of verse 13 of chapter 1 to preacher, apostle, and teacher of the nations, of the Gentiles. So who are the all of which Paul speaks of? Jews and Gentiles. Israel and the nations. His salvation extends to the ends of the world, to the ends of the earth. God's people come from all the nations. Everywhere we go, we know God has people there. Everywhere we go, we know God desires our salvation. And as we see, Paul says elsewhere in Colossians chapter 3, verse 11, he says here, Speaking of the church of God, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So why do we pray so fervently for the salvation of all men? Because there is only one hope. People without Christ will never know life. There is no escape route apart from Jesus. Now, You and I can't save anybody. Paul couldn't save anybody. We are not responsible to save anybody, but we are responsible to pray. And we, we, as we gather together as a church, must remember our neighbors, our family members, our nation, other nations, our missionaries, other churches. Why? There's only one hope for all men, the man, Jesus Christ, the only mediator between God and men, the only eternal sacrifice for sin. First Timothy 2, 1 through 7, this uh, beginning of the practical section of his letter, teaches us that as the church gathers, we must pray for the salvation of all people because That is pleasing to our only God and our only mediator, Jesus, who is the only ransom for the world. 
When we gather together as a, as a church, we pray for those who don't know Jesus. We pray for these things when we have K-groups, Sunday school. And if you need guidance, we have uh, these little booklets here. And if you uh, look inside, it lists all of our missionaries that we're, we're supporting, the church planners we're supporting. You see the families here and their prayer requests. Let these prayer requests be your prayer requests. You'll notice uh, their prayer requests are for the salvation for the people of which they're ministering to. And you'll notice some mention uh, issues that they're having with the governing authorities in the countries that they're in. Pray for their governing authorities, that they would have freedom to go and share the good news of Christ. And you'll notice on the bottom of, on the back page of this, it says, Prayer is the foundation upon which all Christian ministries are based and sustained. It will be our objective to maintain a continuing assertive prayer support for each of our missionaries. Soon, Lord willing, uh, Providence Baptist Church will be planting another church in the Huntsville area. Why? Why would we plant another church in the Huntsville area? Because God desires the salvation of those people that are in the community of which we will plant. Pray for those who are going. Pray for the relationships with governing authorities as they look for a place to meet as a church. It's not all that easy to find a meeting place. So pray for them as they search. Maybe reading through this little booklet here will inspire you to study up on other people groups that have no gospel access. Pray for them. Pray that God will, in his mercy, send messengers of the gospel. If you're here today through the invite of a friend or just wanting to attend a church to see what it's all about, well, the reason why you are here is because someone prayed for you. They prayed that you would hear that Jesus died for our sins and was raised. They prayed that you would hear that the only way to come to know true peace and have eternal life is through confessing your sins before him and calling on Christ to save you. Saying, I, I believe you died and rose for my sin. Please save me. If that is you, he will save you. He will gladly save you. Call upon him today. Christian, in your personal life, and, and this is not just for missionaries, you as a Christian, do you have loved ones, family, friends, co-workers, you know they are not followers of Christ. How often do you pray for them? How often, when you meet together in your groups, as we meet together as a church, whether it's in K groups, Sunday school, Sunday gathering, do you share your burden for your lost friends? So we all can pray for them. Knowing that that's God's chosen means by which he saves people through the gospel proclamation and the prayers of his people. We share the gospel, but we can't save. 
we pray to God because he can save. And he desires to save sinners. And he is the savior of the world. Let's pray. Our Lord, you desire the salvation of the world. You planned this from before the creation of the world that you would redeem the world. May it be our desire. Help us as a church to know why we exist, Lord. We exist for you. We exist for your glory. We exist to share your, show your glory to the world. The glory of the only blessed Savior, Jesus Christ. The glory of his cross. The glory of his resurrection. The glory of him saving sinners. Saving them by faith alone, that you may get all the glory. Lord, remind us daily to pray for the lost, to pray for governing authorities, not only of our own nation, but of other nations, to pray for laborers to go out to other nations, to other places in this area that don't have a gospel witness. You are the only God and only Savior. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.